Well, there is not one symptom of menopause that doesn't yeah. respond to moving. My approach is to tackle the main issues, declining strength of muscle and bone. Balance is so important because, you know what, if we don't fall over, we're less likely to have a fracture. It's quite important to avoid falling over if we can. Posture and alignment, that's one of the core Pilates principles, the way in which we align our bodies contributes to our ability to function and perform. And although, you know, posture comes under a lot of criticism, posture is dynamic, posture is not just standing still, but actually the way in which we align the diaphragm and the pelvic floor can impact their ability to function and perform. So, you know, th there is a place for this. And we certainly don't want to end up bent over double you know, in our older age, we want to be able to stand up straight. I'm Philippa. In this podcast, me and my generous guests delve deep into the world of menopause. Buckle up and get ready to embark on a journey of empowerment and self-discovery as we embrace the change. Welcome to Moving Through Menopause. Philippa, good morning. Good morning. Very excited to uh, speak to you today. It's my second time meeting you in person. And for the audience listening, Philippa is a chartered physiotherapist, a certified yoga instructor, and a certified uh, Pilates instructor. So I think I want to start, if I'm being selfish, by speaking to you about yoga, because... I'm about five months into my personal yoga journey. I've spoken about this in previous podcasts, especially when we interviewed a another yoga instructor. And so I was picking his brain. But it's something that I definitely undervalued, underestimated and judged and was very ignorant to, still am ignorant to, but discovering it. So tell me about your yoga journey. When did that begin for you? And I also want to ask you why specifically Hatha Yoga? Well, my yoga journey began about 10 years ago when I returned from the States and uh, I started to experience symptoms of perimenopause and sleeplessness was one of those things that I was experiencing. And so I had a friend who was a yoga teacher and I went along and did some sessions with her because I came to understand that meditative practices like yoga can contribute to a restful night's sleep. So that was something that I had, I had, had explored it in my earlier uh, life, movement career, if you like. And a little bit like you, I felt it wasn't dynamic enough or uh, maybe just didn't quite get the point of it at that moment in time. And so it was me returning to yoga and I just fell in love with the holistic practice in the whole sense of the word. We're connecting the mind, the body, the spirit, and we're moving at the same time. And you can really get lost in yoga. And, and I absolutely love that about it. And Hatha Yoga. So I, I do, I practice Ashtanga and I mm. practice Vinyasa. Mm. My studio offers more mm. options, but not Hatha. So where, do, where does Hatha come in? What, and what, what is... Well, now, Danny, you're asking me, aren't you? But Hatha Yoga, basically, I wanted to do a training 
And I didn't want to travel to the ends of the earth to do it. And so it just so happened that there was a teacher in my local vicinity and he was offering Hatha yoga training. And I think Hatha yoga is one of the most common uh, practices that you can experience. And so for me, it was really just an opportunity to learn the yoga practice. And I didn't really have an agenda, to be honest. I practiced something called forest yoga. And I know that Ashtanga and Vinyasa are both quite vigorous practices. And Hatha is more opportunities to sustain postures and maybe hold a posture for longer and inhabit a posture. But by the same token, we can string postures together and turn it into a vinyasa flow. So I kind of felt that Hatha offered me the opportunity to get a certification, to become a teacher and just really continue on my journey of developing and you know, I, I'm really open to lots of different movement experiences. And then actually this year, I'm hoping to try aerial yoga. That's on my list of things to try. So, you know, I try not to get too deep into, you know, the, the detail around this and think more about what do I want to transmit to the people that I work with in terms of movement? What movements do I want them to experience? If I want them to experience thoracic extension, then maybe we'll do a baby cobra. Perhaps we'll do an angianasana, a, a kneeling lunge, you know? So that's really how I approach yoga. And, and so, you know, the meditation is something that I'm still relatively new to. And, you know, learning is just my reason for being, my raison d'être, as they would say. And movement mm. is the core of your, of what you preach. It absolutely is at the center of everything that I do, yes. Menopause. Oh. <laughs> Can you explain what menopause is? It's a big one, but to someone who doesn't, you know, obviously hasn't experienced it. No. Um, <laughs> you know, and I don't know really much about it and I'm sure there are many therapists out there that males or females that haven't experienced it mm. that don't know enough about it. Mm. I mean this has been my journey over the last couple of years really delving deep into all the ramifications that menopause wreaks on a woman's body and so menopause is really the time when your periods stop it's the end of the reproductive cycle. And for most women, that will be around the age of 50, 51 in the Western world anyway. But what came as a revelation to me, you know, and probably it shouldn't have, but it did, was that we can start to experience the fluctuating hormones from, you know, our early 40s even. And so our bodies are changing and symptoms, there's a, a huge list of symptoms that women can experience. And that is physical symptoms, psychological, emotional symptoms. And the list, you know, there's over 34 of those symptoms on that list. Most women experience at least some of the symptoms? Most women will experience at least some. 25% of women will have severe symptoms. And so that can range from hot flushes is a common symptom that mo many people will be familiar with. But insomnia, sleeplessness, that was the thing that I was really struggling with. 
dry skin, you know, weird and wonderful things, digestive disturbances, mood disruptions, anxiety, unexplained anxiety coming out of the blue from nowhere. You've never had it before. You can't work out what on earth is happening to me, you know. So affecting all of the body systems, if we think that hormones, you know, these are female hormones that are coursing through our veins and there are estrogen receptors in all parts of our bodies, in the brain, in the muscle tissue, in the bone. And I suppose that kind of brings me to where I am in terms of therapists, because I am very keen that therapists appreciate the ramifications of these fluctuating hormones on the skeletal tissue, the bones, the muscles, any collagenous tissue, actually, you know, collagen synthesis is affected by these estrogen levels. And so it has wide ranging ramifications and certain musculoskeletal conditions were predisposed to frozen shoulders, say, for instance. Shoulder pain is commonly influenced by these fluctuating female hormones. And so, you know, it's not necessarily something that would be on your radar for the woman in your care. You know, it may well not be on their radar that they're not realizing that these fluctuations are occurring. For me, I felt like... I was underserved as a therapist in not having been a little bit more aware of all of these ramifications. So it caught you by surprise? Well, yes, it caught me by surprise because I was 45 when I started to experience symptoms and that wasn't really what I was anticipating. I didn't have a hot flush. I was struggling with insomnia. You know, that's not something that you and would you necessarily... Never, and you never had experience suffering from insomnia Well, yeah. So interestingly, the evidence is that if you have had experiences of insomnia uh, earlier on in your life, then you're more likely to struggle with it around that time of menopause. And that was my experience. You know, a, a life-changing experience when I was a young uh, teenager losing my brother in a motorbike accident meant that I struggled for a period of time with depression, anxiety and those kinds of things. And at that time, my insomnia was something that was born, if you like. How old were you then? I was 17. And at that age, did you were you in a place where you were aware of these things that were happening to you like anxiety like insomnia or so did you did you look for solutions then do you think experiencing yes. well yeah yeah so movement has always been my solution actually so you always felt like movement helped you personally yes always without a shadow of a doubt did you know that you were going to uh, be trained as a physiotherapist well at 17 it was on my list of courses that i was looking to study i was studying my a levels and yes, yeah, that was that was my path, and uh, uh, and I embarked on that path without hesitation. You know, when I was eighteen, I completed my A level studies and set on my journey to become a physiotherapist. And you've lived in many places in the world, right? The first time I met you, you told me how uh, well traveled you are. <laughs> uh, so where have you lived? Well, I mean, we've lived around the United Kingdom different places, Scotland and the south of England. And then I'm from the northwest. You may or may not be able to tell. 
And then Cyprus was a place that I had a whale of a time for a couple of years and then Colorado in uh, the United States. So that's when you mentioned when you came back from the States, you started experiencing symptoms. How was Colorado? (laughs) Where in Colorado? Well, we were in Colorado Springs Mm. and Colorado, the healthiest state in the United States. So I was very at home there. (laughs) There's a term Mm -hmm. which might be derogatory, but they call them granola. Gran- oh, really? Have you heard that before? No, I haven't. Actually. Granola people hike are healthy, pretty much. <laughs> people that take care of themselves, yeah. they refer to as granola people. But yeah, so you felt in good company there? Yeah, yeah. It was my spiritual home. The hiking in the mountains, mountain biking, horse riding, swimming outdoors, you know, being able to be warm enough in the summer that you can swim outdoors. Amazing. Yeah. And did you practice physiotherapy in these countries that you lived in, Cyprus and the US? Yeah, well, in Cyprus, I was the uh, physiotherapist to the Royal Air Force Akrotiri rugby team (laughs) for two years. That was a volunteer position. And so, yeah, weekends, I'd be out there on the sidelines, taping the ears back on and such like. (laughs) Was that your first experience working with athletes? Yes, I think it was probably. Yeah, I I was in the training room. I was, you know, putting them together midweek, putting them back together, helping them with the preparations, although there was still quite a lot of drinking involved in that. I'm sure. Yeah. And strapping, you know, before they went on the pitch, I did a lot of strapping. And uh, yeah, I I think the opportunities that I've had that came about because of me moving around, you know, have really allowed me to explore things that I otherwise would never have done. So circling back, actually, to your teenage years, and like, what what led you to discover personally movement? as a therapy for you at a young age? Well, it was a family habit. So... Did I... I I read on one of your bios that your family was in the top 10 fittest (laughs) British families or something of the sort? (laughs) Well, it was a competition run by a a magazine called Athletics Weekly or Runner's World or one of those uh, magazines that my, uh, my dad decided it would be good for us all to enter as a family. And uh, yes, we did it two years running and we were 10th both times, but I was 12 and 13 around the times when we were doing those competitions. So my dad was the one who introduced the whole family to sporting pursuits and it was athletics that he was uh, particularly interested in. And it was just a lifestyle, you know, something that we did every Monday and Wednesday, went to the track and you were divided into your age groups. So it was lovely, you know, parents, kind of a little bit of childcare as well. We would go off with the youths doing our training and then everybody would meet up and it was very sociable. And then, of course, you've got the competitions at the weekend, track meets in the summer, cross country running in the winter. My least favorite thing, I have to confess. But, you know, it gave you structure to your week, structure to your lives. You know, there were seasons in sport and it was really just something that I never thought anything about. It was just something that we did as a family. My dad was quite fanatical about outdoor pursuits. You know, he had us cold water swimming before it was even a thing. You know, he built a kayak 
it was it was just bonkers, really. We we did wild camping, you know, and this is back in the seventies before it, everybody else was at it. My mum made a tent, believe it or not, on a sewing machine. So, yeah, we were really just exploring lots of different opportunities. And yeah, you kind of had to be there is all I'm going to say. Sounds, sounds fun. <laughs> it sounds really fun. So you start practicing physiotherapy and then what is your first reaction of like just being introduced to individuals with various problems all over their bodies? Was it like something that, that struck you, that surprised you, that g- the general population did not know that maybe you've discovered already on yourself because you were so active throughout your youth? Not really. I, I mean, I was just a sponge to be honest. I knew that rehabilitation was something that I was particularly keen to explore. So working with individuals that suffered an injury? and Yeah, the, the walking wounded, as I called them, you know. So the, so the idea that these people, they were not in pyjamas, they were, you know, they were up and about and uh, maybe they'd hurt themselves, had an injury or, you know, some sort of rheumatological conditions, amputees, you know, all sorts of... Uh, uh, like I say, the walking wounded. And yeah, that that was my, for as long as I can think, that was the thing, the only thing that I wanted to be doing. So that was your focus yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so was that your focus until you started experiencing um, those menopause symptoms? Well, yes, musculoskeletal uh, physiotherapy is is all I ever did. I think the living uh, in Colorado in particular was a time when I was not able to practice as a physiotherapist. And so that was when I really was delving into the Pilates side of the house. And I encountered for the first time in my life a Pilates reformer machine, which is what I think the most fantastic rehabilitation tool that you could encounter, to be perfectly honest. It's very trendy right now. Oh, it is, isn't it? Very trendy. Where I live in Tel Aviv, it's the most expensive workout that you can do and toughest one to find an open slot. Oh, really? To position yourself in. Yeah. So I actually never tried it myself, but you're saying that it's the best rehabilitation system. Yeah, well, in actual fact, Joseph Pilates, you know, he was a person and he invented, built, engineered these machines to work with people who had suffered injuries and illness. So Pilates, the mat work actually came after the reformer work initially. Okay, so I did did not know Mm. that. So first the reformer started as a practice and only then the mat Pilates developed. Well, in as much as he viewed that as a progression. So Joseph Pilates, you may not know that he was interned in the Isle of Man. So he spent some time over here in the United Kingdom. And whilst he was there, he was uh, working in the infirmary, helping his fellow campmates. And he would attach bed springs to the beds to allow them to exercise because he had experienced lots of different modes of exercise. He was a boxer. He taught self-defense. He'd done yoga and and lots of other different movement practices. And so he kind of, I think, almost think this is where the idea of the reformer spring resistance was born. And then he came up with the moving platform, which is the integral part that, that really makes it a Pilates reformer is the moving platform. So in Colorado is where you started mm. practicing with the reformer? 
Yeah, I'd ne- I hadn't met one till I went to Colorado. And, you know, there were half a dozen studios filled with these machines. And so, yes, I did, I did my first certification on the reformer in Colorado. And then I came back to the United Kingdom and I had to do it all over again, which, you know, was fine. What is it maybe, what is it that's so unique about it though? Like what, am I missing something in my, in my weekly movement that I'm not getting by not practicing on a reformer? Well, I mean, the moving platform is is the one thing that you won't be getting anywhere else. Unless I guess you stand on a BOSU, maybe an upturned BOSU. Uh, Very advanced, I guess. I, well, quite, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. That's very advanced. It's not accessible to people who, until they're much further through the rehabilitation journey. So, you know, the fact that we can have people lying down and offer resistance, um, you know, a bit like a leg press machine, so that it's part of the body weight, a portion of the body weight, not the whole body weight. So we can we can offer resistance that is challenging, and equally we can offer resistance that is supporting the limbs, the weight of the limbs. So yeah, are you missing something? Yes, is the answer to that. I would heartily recommend you might find this is your next big thing. <laughs> it's something I will try. But you see, you're saying that it, it does, like it's the machine that just makes it accessible, a certain type of movement. Yes. Yeah. So we can make it accessible to people who are needing rehabilitation, but equally we can make it really, really hard and advanced. And do you teach Matt Pilates as well? Yes. Yeah. And what's your opinion about Matt Pilates? Well, I guess Pilates does come under some scrutiny, being criticised for maybe not being as functional as it might be. But then, you know, it, it really depends on what you're doing, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, so exercising flat on your back may not be the most functional thing that you can do, but every day we've all got to get up out of bed, haven't we? You know, and in this modern life, what we call ground dwelling, you know, is is moving towards extinction. And so is the skill that goes along with that if we're not careful. So, you know, the ability for us to get on and off the ground, maybe we need to spend a bit of time on the ground in the first place. Yeah. Because that is a, it's a common health strength test, right? Mm. For someone to get off the ground easily. Yeah, yeah. And then also getting off the ground without using, yeah, without your, using yeah. your hands. Well, I don't know how common it is, but I, I've got a whole YouTube list of movements that you can do, 25 movements that will help for you to master the ability to get on and off the ground without using your hands. And it is a predictor of longevity, essentially. Are there any other major predictors of longevity that you subscribe to? Yeah, better balance. So I know also a lot of your exercises Mm. are one-legged exercises I've seen and focusing on balance. And it's something that also I practice a lot and try and do. And obviously yoga incorporates a lot of that. And then only when you need to hold yourself on one leg for like 10 breaths, you realize how... uh, Actually hard it is. How really hard it is. And then someone tells you that 
your your hips are not parallel to the ground and your hips are not even so you try and balance that out and then you realize that you really can't hold your balance on one foot because we do make all these body function tweaks oh, to make yeah. it as easy as possible for us to stand on one leg so when someone corrects us to the right where you're supposed to be um, balancing then it's, it is very difficult yeah well that's right and of course there's lots of body systems that contribute to our ability to balance you know the musculoskeletal system is is one of those and the vestibular system you know the balance mechanisms in our so what ears. is the vestibular system well it's the little canals that that are in your ears the semicircular canals and you know and those are fluid filled and and they contribute they send signals to the brain that basically help us to orientate ourselves in space so we know where we are in space and not to put a downer on the situation but all of these structures you know they're as old as we are and so the fluid in the canals becomes more viscous with age there's actually a, a joint in the canals the stirrup that is one of the bones and there's an articulation and that joint moves around to give us this joint position sense and that's a joint like any other you know it gets stiffer as we get older. And so these kinds of things contribute to us feeling dizzier than we used to do, you know. And dizziness is a, another symptom associated with menopause and balance difficulties. So we need to train all of these different systems. And so, you know, all these things, the body systems working together are the things that I consider when I am prescribing my programs, whether it's to a group or to an individual. And so, you know, moving your eyes in your head is something that can contribute to your ability to balance. You know, in yoga, we're quite keen often, you know, fix on a spot. Well, you or look at the third eye. Yes, that's right. But actually, what if you move your eyes around in your head while you stood on one leg? You'll find that's a whole lot harder. Harder. Mm. Okay. So what, closing your eyes and then... Well, closing your eyes, uh, of course, that uh, eliminates one source of information. And so, yes, closing your eyes would make it much harder. But just moving your eyes, scanning your eyes from side to side, scanning your eyes up and down. That is going to add a layer of challenge, a layer of difficulty. And then if you close your eyes, that's a whole nother level of difficulty. So you recommend women that are experiencing or going through menopause and experiencing uh, even severe symptoms to pursue movement? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the thing we're talking, if we're talking specifically about balance, what we find as we age is that we start to feel less steady generally. Movement processing is affected. Our ability to process lots of different sources of information becomes impaired and more difficult. We're slower generally at doing these things. But one thing that prevents or slows that decline is practicing these things. So it's really counterintuitive if you feel dizzy to do something that's going to bring on that symptom. However, if you don't do that and you avoid that sensation, then the chances are that over time it will take less and less and less to bring on that symptom. So it's, it's exposure therapy, essentially. And we know exposure therapy, just in the broadest sense, works on 
lots of body systems. So muscles get bigger and stronger because we overstress them. You know, and it's the same with all our body systems, really, the circulatory system, the neurological system. None of these systems are different in that regard. They all respond to being put under a degree of stress. And so our job as therapists is to work out what level of stress we need to expose people to you know, whether it's strengthening muscles, bones, helping people to balance, regaining movement after an injury, you know, whatever it is, we're navigating a path with people back to a restorative path. And then, of course, with people that are with an aging population, we're navigating a path to prevent decline. Is in your in, in your experience, mm. you recommend though? Um, a, do you recommend a specific? exercise a specific form of movement um, for women that are experiencing menopause but also for the ones that are the 25 percent that are experiencing what you said severe symptoms well there is not one symptom of menopause that doesn't respond to moving and and so my approach is to tackle the the main issues one is declining strength of muscle and bone The other, the balance is so important because, you know what, if we don't fall over, we're less likely to have a fracture. So, you know, it's quite important to avoid falling over if we can. Posture and alignment, you know, that's one of the core Pilates principles is the way in which we align our bodies contributes to our ability to function and perform. And although, you know, posture comes under a lot of criticism, posture is dynamic, posture is not just standing still, but actually the way in which we align the diaphragm and the pelvic floor can impact their ability to function and perform. So, you know, there is a place for this and we certainly don't want to end up bent over double, you know, in our older age, we want to be able to stand up straight for respiratory function, for, you know, for lots of different reasons. And so those three key elements, and then of course the other is uh, pelvic health, which is something that as a musculoskeletal therapist, I've kind of come to a bit later in my career, this appreciation of the importance of shining a light on pelvic health and how the diaphragm and the pelvic floor and the deep core musculature, they all work together to maintain what is a pressurized system. And so, uh, you know, we can't just talk about the walls of the cylinder. We've got to consider the the ceiling and the floor. And so, you know, I I am incorporating that a lot more into the work that I do. But for a woman experiencing menopause symptoms, Mm. should she pursue other forms of activities? For example, like should, should she be running? Yeah, well, I mean, the... The thing is, people have to do what they enjoy because if they don't enjoy it, then they're less likely to do it. I'm a big fan of cross training. You know, I I talked about mountain biking and horse riding and skiing, maybe not. But, you know, all of these different activities bring something to our lives. Cardiovascular output. It's important for us to do some form of cardiovascular activity or to drive the cardiovascular system. And, And there's different ways of driving the system. You know, you mentioned the vinyasa yoga. 
that will increase your heart rate and it will make you potentially make you sweat and red in the face <laughs> and increase the respiratory rate. So, you know, we're driving the cardiovascular system when we do things like that. But for people that simply want to go out and walk more, then, you know, do that. I am of the opinion that we need to incorporate cardiovascular training, strength training and mobility into our lives. And so, you know, for me, Pilates and the way I teach Pilates and yoga, I incorporate strength, a focus, a big focus on strength, particularly for women. We need to strengthen, build muscle. Muscle is an organ. You know, it synthesizes hormones and building muscle releases brain derived neurotrophic factor, which is helps us with our neurogeneration, our neuroregeneration. And so brain health, it's really important for brain health. So if I, if there was one thing that I would say to women, it is be strong. You know, that is the one thing that I would recommend. And aesthetically, sometimes yes. it's, there's a, you know, a stereotype of being strong means mm -hmm. beefy and not so attractive. So yeah, but yeah. strong is important. Yeah, yeah. Strong is really... And strong is not big muscles. No. Strong is many things. Yeah. Um, especially when you start going to yoga classes. Yeah. Um, you realize you've been in the gym your whole life and you think you're strong, but then there's people that you wouldn't categorize them and strong just by the way they look maybe, mm. but then now they can do a one arm handstand. So it's, <laughs> you know, it's a very humbling experience seeing people do these different things that you couldn't even imagine doing or the people that you surround yourself with, who you always thought were the strongest people, you know, couldn't even think about doing. No. I mean, there is a skill element as well that you, we, we haven't got to forget. You know, it's not just about brute strength doing something like a single armed handstand. There is a skill element and a practice, you know, that, that idea that practice makes for improvement. I mean, people, maybe really strong people could just throw a, a one-handed Handstand, but no, probably not. But by honing the, these yeah. skills, yeah. obviously, a one one hand on handstand is a bit <laughs> extreme. extreme. Yeah, not very accessible. No. But honing skills mm. of that form yeah. will help you develop strength and yeah. understanding how your body works and how to yeah. use your body maybe in the best way possible to avoid things like falling down. Yeah. yeah. To avoid things like a bad posture. Yeah of the sorts but so i'll reframe my original question okay. there i'm uh, sorry to hang on That's that okay. topic but so is there a certain type of movement though that you would recommend women to avoid while going through this stage of life well so the challenge is to navigate a path to moving more without hurting yourself so the danger is that we sort of get hoodwinked into thinking that we should be doing certain things. And of course, social media is filled with these messages and, uh, and videos of how to lift heavy weights. And some of it is good uh, and some of it is less good. And none of it is tailored to you as an individual if you haven't had you know, an interaction with that, with that teacher. So the danger is that we see people, especially in January, it's January, it's a new year, new me, you know, all of that. The resolution. Yeah, exactly. And we see people all the time. This is great business for the physiotherapy industry because people go out there, throw themselves into something 
and invariably they're in danger of hurting themselves. And that's the thing that I really would want to, to encourage people to consider that it is as much about the way that we move as the movements that we make. And so, you know, that lifting weights is great. I lift weights myself, but I have really good form. <laughs> and I've been doing it for a long time and I'm less likely to hurt myself doing it because of that. So embrace something, get strong, find something that you think might help you. You know, yoga strong, Pilates strong, whether it's gym strong, you know, whatever kind of strong it is, but get some guidance so that we can eliminate or reduce your risks of hurting yourself. You know, tendinopathies are something that's a characteristic of this middle life time. And that's because our collagen is just not as resilient as it was once. And so impingement at the shoulder is much more common because the subacromial space, maybe we've done things, the bursa might be a bit thickened and we're more subject to impingement in the shoulder, but we're not knowing that. So what we do know about our bodies, our brains, is that there is a level of decline that occurs that we do not perceive. And so because it's so incremental, well, the, there's that. Yes, it is so incremental. And so we do not perceive it. And you know what? In my head, I, I look in the mirror. It's a different story. But in my head, you know, I, I could still be tw in my 20s doing all those things I did then. But throw a cartwheel. I might not be quite as good as I used to be. And I may just hurt myself, you know. So just to be cognizant of the fact that there moving in a particular way so we can move in a way that will increase the subacromial space. If we think about where the scapula are orientated on the back of us, then we're more likely to have uh, more space in this area underneath the acromion. And so when we're doing our overhead weight lifting, we're less likely to impinge on the bursa, etc. Whereas without that guidance, people are taking more risks. And uh, what you said about our body's abilities to move in, to adapt, to compensate, to accommodate, all of this is totally subconscious. We're, we're not doing any of it on purpose. It's our body's strive to be as efficient as it possibly can be, energy efficient, that is. And so half the time, we're not even aware of what we're doing. But then that's why we have to tackle it with being aware yeah. of yeah, yeah. having the correct yeah. technique, correct alignment, yeah. correct everything. So that mindful approach to movement, and that's what I love about yoga and Pilates. They both are very much mindful approaches to movement. And so that is a skill as well in and of itself. You know, the ability to tune in to how our bodies feel when we do certain things, we're out of our bodies so much of the time that we are totally unaware. And so this is a skill that we can learn and benefit from. And then it translates into other areas of our lives, that that mindful approach to movement, whatever it is. Yeah. So so for women in their teens, 20s, 30s, who are active, are athletic, are strong, are there any other measures that they can be taking, should be taking to maybe, you know, to maybe assure that they'll 
hopefully being that 75% of uh, women who experience uh, menopause symptoms <laughs> or going through sem- and not yeah. being that 25% yeah, yeah. nutrition or other elements that come in? Supplementation? Well, so be prepared uh, is the thing. I think metabolic health is something that we would uh, consider. What I heard is that 50% of the population might be pre-diabetic. You know, these changes in our bodies that are happening, bubbling away under the surface, that it's only when they get to a certain threshold that you become symptomatic, say, for instance. So for us to look after our metabolic health will invariably help with this, how we handle hormones, if you like. And so, you know, for me, it really is about embracing holistic approach to being healthy. And so, yes, sugar, in my opinion, is something that we should avoid from a metabolic point of view. I think uh, I, I definitely read that shoulder pain, two contributing factors. One is your hormonal health, where you are in your hormonal situation. And two was that it's much more common in someone who is pre-diabetic. And all of these things so interconnected, you know, the mind, body, spirit. I think the one thing for me that, that really has come to me later that I hope is coming to other therapists sooner in the journey, you know, is, is this idea of self-efficacy, you know, the idea that people, the, the amount of control that people feel they have over their own health is really important so that we as therapists are giving them that opportunity to to experience control if you like the the ability to create a shift whether it's to decrease pain to to help them feel be stronger to help them to have more range of movement and for them to feel like that's something they had a part in you know, and so to empower people to feel like they are the architect of their own health. You know, preventative medicine is really my happy place. It's something that I've practiced for myself and my own family, you know, to, to move well, to move more, to eat well. And and the mind management piece of the puzzle is really very, very important for us to be cognizant of as therapists and people. Because everyone can drive this bus of health, right? You know, obviously you can be uh, smacked in the face with surprises that you have no control over, Mm. but even then you have control over what you do the next day and the next day, how you move, what you move, what you put in your mouth, what you look at, and all these small measures that Mm. probably, as you mentioned, affect really all the systems of the body. Mm. Pregnancy. Yeah, I know. An interesting one. (laughs) Also something I haven't experienced yet. But is it also like movement? Is it recommended for a woman who is pregnant? Well, the guidance is that if you were active before you got pregnant, then carry on being active. If you are not, then approach it with caution, you know, so that that's not to say don't do it. But, you know, accessible things like just 10,000 steps a day, if you wanted to use an arbitrary figure, 
some gentle yoga practices and just work with somebody who is familiar with the, the pregnant woman's body. Do you what, work with pregnant women? Not particularly, no. It isn't. I mean, I've had two children, so I am familiar with what happens. <laughs> uh, and I did exercise the whole way through both my pregnancies. But at the time, I was running quite a lot. And so... I think from about 12 weeks, I just elected that the running could wait and I would do more walking. But there are there are lots of people out there who do specialize in in helping pregnant women. And I think, you know, the thing that I feel is that this is often a time when people who previously have been active kind of start to fall off the wagon a little bit because opportunities, you know, when you've got a little one to look after, it can be really challenging to fit this stuff in and around your life. And, you know, we had to get really imaginative as a family for us to be able to do this. My my husband, you know, is also a keen outdoorsman and uh, uh, footballer, actually. Well, that's more in your field, isn't yes. it? Yes. Which team does he support? Oh, gosh. I, I don't say Manchester United, but... Yay. Oh, good. There we are. <laughs> You know, so we we got imaginative. Uh, the the bike seat, the 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 baby carrying devices, then to the bike seat, and then we get them on, you know, in the trailer that you can drag along behind your bicycle. And then as soon as they could ride a scooter or a bicycle, then we could jog alongside them. And actually, it's now in their DNA. So this thing that my dad started, you know, put into my DNA is now in their DNA. And and I, I, you know, this is how these things begin. And it starts with you, but you can pass it on. It's kind of contagious to the people around you, friends, family members. Do you still run? Do I still run? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, do you know what? I'm kind of semi-retired from running. Uh, semi? What does semi mean? Well, it means that I, in my circuit training every Saturday morning, there's usually some running up and down the gym to be had. And when I do, I do a class on a Monday morning usually, which is jumping up and down on a step and, you know, those kinds of things. So, you know, it, it is actually really important because the elastic recoil of the muscles for us to move quickly you know, that's something as well that declines if we're not careful, the muscle mass, the strength, but also the responsiveness of our muscles. And that's a, neuro a neurological and, and a muscular sort of thing that happens. So, you know, to keep practicing skills that require us to respond quickly. And so, yes, I, I throw a bit of running in, but I'm, I mean, I used to run five or six days a week, not far, but, you know, yeah. I would do it every day. And now it's a couple of times a week, I guess. Yeah, I'm only asking because from a maybe mental health mm. perspective, yeah. I just for me at least, mm. you know, I've always found that running, I still dread it every time before, before. I before mm. going out for the run, which I think yeah. people won't believe me because people that see me run probably think, oh, it's so easy for him to go run. It's so, it's so second nature. <laughs> uh, but it's not because I look mm. for every single excuse I have in my uh, back pocket not to go running that day. But oh, it's always the after mm. that you feel so... Yeah, like, yeah. And different from yoga. I think a, a, for me at least a complete different feeling. Where, whereas in yoga, mm. I feel more rejuvenated, mm. energized, almost like a very good night of sleep waking up energ energized which doesn't really happen that often no but after a yoga session i do feel that and after a run it's almost like a, a sense of 
like mission accomplished, fulfillment, mm. like almost like no other? Well, it, it is a probably a different set of biochemistry that's going on there. And our natural uh, cannabinoids is something that we get when we run endogenous cannabinoids. And that's, you know, a substance, again, that changes our brain chemistry. I actually, what I didn't say was I do spinning. So high intensity, high intensity, whether it's running on a spinning bike, for some people swimming, if they've got a good enough technique that they can get enough intensity into the swimming, those kinds of things, you know, then you are going to be able to tap into that biochemistry. And for me, running was the thing that really helped me with my brain chemistry at difficult times. But, you know, for me, it is the cross training that that I really would favor, yeah. you know, the strength, the mobility and the high intensity sort of interval types. Breathing. <gasps> Breathing. And I saw it's also, I think there's, you have a list of books that you recommend. And one of yeah. them is titled Breathing. In Pilates, I was introduced for the first time to a, I haven't done much Pilates, but one of the things I remember was like breathing to the lungs, to the core. Okay. So breathing is quite topical, isn't it, at the moment? You know, yeah, talk- the, I know at the moment <laughs> and for the last tens of thousands of years. Well, it's kind of essential, yeah, isn't we, it? We, it's essential to life. But it's also a trending now from, yeah. I think like it's resurfacing where people want to find out how do we do it better? Yeah. Um, yeah. I might've said this before in another podcast, but a, a quote that I heard once that has stuck with me now for many years is like, we breathe to survive, not to thrive. Mm. Um, so like there's ways for us to breathe more efficiently to help us. Yes, that's right. And, uh, you know, a significant portion of the population will have dysfunctional breathing patterns and not know it. So breathing speaks to the mood and the psyche quite a lot. It also speaks to the pelvic floor, you know, the cylinder that we were talking about before, the floor and the ceiling, they have synergies with one another. If we think about the myofascial connections, the sole of the foot, we've got connections that travel through the pelvic floor all the way to the diaphragm and to the back of the heart, actually. So we can't separate this stuff out is the thing. And so breathing optimally for oxygenation, if we think that the circulation, the blood is pooling at the bases of the lungs. And so you get the best oxygen exchange when the air is all the way at the bases of your lungs. So because of gravity, the blood is pooling more around the bases of the lungs. And so we have to get the air to the bases of the lungs. And in order to get the air to the bases of the lungs, we have to harness the action of the diaphragm. The diaphragm attaches to the margins of the rib cage, the lower margins of the rib cage. And so if we want to access the diaphragm, we need to move the rib cage. And so essentially, that is it. We access the diaphragm, we take the air to the bases of the lungs. What we know is nasal breathing is more likely to access the diaphragm. And so breathing in and out through the nostrils is something that we're starting to hear more about. It also cleans the air, moistens the air, filters the air, you know, so it is the way yeah. that we're intended to breathe. Joseph Pilates taught a method of breathing, which is a rib cage expansion. 
So, you know, like I said, the ribcage expansion speaks to the diaphragm. But ribcage expansion without expanding your chest? Well, what we want specifically to do is expand the bottom part of the ribcage so that it's possible to breathe apically at the top of the lungs and to have very little excursion of the diaphragm and very little movement of the ribcage. So when you are going about your day, you're sitting at the computer, deep breathing is not necessarily called for, is it? We're not, we don't have that drive to Not even thinking about it. Well, we're definitely not thinking about it. No, quite. And so, you know, in our modern life, levels of activity are, are, are less. And so it may be that you could go through a whole week of never actually being called upon to breathe deeply. If we get, you know, I lived in America, the car is in the garage, you go from the kitchen to the car, you open the garage door, you drive out, you know, you, you don't see people walking on the streets. I had visitors come to see me and they said, where are all the people? Because they're in the cars, you know, they're, ne they're never on foot anywhere. The infrastructure isn't really intended for that. So you live there, you, you will maybe know what I'm talking about. No, I know exactly, yeah. So, you know, we could get through a whole week of never needing to breathe deeply. And breathing drives the metabolism. Metabolism drives the breathing. It's all got this feedback loop where everything, you know, works both ways so that we can practice breathing techniques which will change our biochemistry, change how we feel, and also condition structures. You know, the, the way in which the pelvic floor and the diaphragm work together, breathing practices can help to condition the pelvic floor. So, you know, it is something that I'm getting increasingly interested in and, and probably yoga has helped me with that because of course in yoga, we've got lots of different deep breathing practices. And so you've got short, rapid breathing, the um, breath of fire, say for instance, and yoga incorporates much more of breath holding so that uh, we're, we're, you know, it, it's like any system, we can train it and it has benefits physiologically, emotionally to do that. And so I can't even remember where we began this conversation. With, with the book that you recommend <laughs> and, and the fact that I tackled like lower lung breathing mm, mm. for the first time really in a Pilates class. So mm. just something uh, also yeah. stuck with me. And now that you mentioned like the, the fact that people can go a week and probably way more mm. for a lot of people without expanding their lungs, without taking any deep breaths mm. is kind of scary. So I hope people are more mindful and conscious of this. And I think it is a topic that is, again, I think it's getting attractive to at least talk about and mm. think about. And even now, just you talking about it now for a couple of minutes, I feel like I was breathing yeah. better while you were speaking about it. I was expanding my lungs just because I'm thinking about it. So it's very interesting. We're going to wrap up now. I know it goes by pretty fast. We'll definitely do this again. But please tell people where they can find you. Obviously, you're on our, our website. We've made a couple of courses together and more. But uh, yeah, please tell people where they can find you. Oh, well, thank you. I'm precision.co.uk and precision is spelt with a Z. I don't know why I ever thought of doing that. But you know, it speaks to my values, which is how we move matters. And uh, moving with precision and control is something that uh, I'm very, very passionate about sharing with people. Philippa, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.